Hello, readers. Max Brooks is an author, public speaker, and non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute in West Point. His best-selling books include Minecraft, The Island, The Zombie Survival Guide, and World War Z, which was adapted into a 2013 movie starring Brad Pitt. And he's got a new book out that we're discussing today, Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. Max, thanks for the time. I was highly entertained by this book. Obviously, you have the tension and storytelling thing down, and we will certainly get into the meat of the book, no pun intended. But what was the genesis for you with Devolution? Well, uh, just fear of Bigfoot. That's pretty much it. I didn't really have a high concept other than as a kid, I was absolutely terrified. And I went about this book the same way I would go about all my other books, which is if something was real, how would it play out? Is Bigfoot something that you became aware of as a kid just from the grainy videos that were shot so long ago? You obviously referenced the videos and some of the lore about Bigfoot in this book. Was that really the start of your fear of Bigfoot is just seeing those grainy videos so many years ago? Yeah, definitely. One of my characters in the book, the park ranger, sort of describes her childhood as a Gen Xer kind of being raised on pop culture in the late 70s, early 80s, and how Bigfoot was a big part of that. Well, she's me in that respect. I'm just going back to my childhood. And we had shows like In Search Of, and we had all these faux documentaries, which, you know, when you're six years old, you don't know they're fake. You see this tall, white-haired Gentile, Peter Graves, with a very deep voice, and you believe everything he says. And when he says, we've interviewed a psychic detective that has positively identified Bigfoot, dude, you're in it. Yeah, no question about that. You mentioned you write from the perspective of the park ranger. You actually write from a few different perspectives, including the primary storyteller. Obviously, actors have different methods to get into specific characters. Do you have a method to write from a different character's perspective when you are going back and forth like you do in Devolution? You know, if I do, I don't know if it's conscious. I think I just try to answer my own questions through different perspectives. For me, it's just a question of getting inside a certain character's head. My main character is Kate Holland, and this book is essentially her found journal, which they have found in the wreckage of her eco-community of Greenloop, which has been utterly destroyed. And for Kate, this is a character going through tremendous emotional change. She's a caretaker. She's diplomatic. She's scared of her own shadow. She blames herself for everything. And she has to evolve, or especially in this case, devolve into a much stronger, more resilient, primitive version of herself. So writing from her perspective is, say, very different than writing from her brother's perspective, who we interview throughout the book as trying to give us some backstory, because that was his house that she was house sitting for. And he's much angrier and darker and racked by guilt. He blames himself. He sent her there. He said, hey, try and save your marriage. Come and house sit for me. And look what happened. Kate and her husband do end up going to this community that is described as isolated, but still giving them access to the modern amenities that we have all become comfortable with. I'm assuming that those sorts of communities do exist in the great Northwest and elsewhere in this country and on this planet. Did you actually visit any of those in doing research for this book? Yeah, I can tell you that Green Loop is based on a real community I've been to. It's a little different. It's not as high tech. It's not as advanced. But all these technologies are there. This is where we are going as a society. We are building 
a civilization built for comfort. And it's only a matter of time before we will be able to have communities like this all over the world, where you'll be able to live anywhere on the planet with sustainable energy and with drone deliveries and with Wi-Fi allowing you to teleconference. You'll be able to have all the comforts of the Upper East Side of Manhattan in the middle of the wilderness. And that's sort of what Green Loop is supposed to be. It's kind of the new Levittown. And if you don't know what Levittown is, it was post-World War II model for the suburbs, where, where the Levitt family sort of put all these new modern conveniences together in tracked housing and said, this is how everybody's going to be living. And I just took it to the next level. This is how everyone's going to be eco-living. Early on in the book, Kate Holland encounters and works with a character named Yvette. She is a model type. Her husband is really the primary caretaker of this community. And Yvette lets Kate in on something called Oma, O-M-A. What is Oma? Oma is one of the many legends of Bigfoot. It's another name like Buqua and Sasquatch. There are so many, so many names. You could fill a book of nothing but Bigfoot names. And this is just another one of the anglicized adaptations of this legend. Max, I wanted to take a break from just talking about the details of this book to ask you about the art of storytelling. Obviously, you have tension and storytelling down. Why is tension so important with you in not only establishing your story, but also getting to the finish line once you do start to pay off the tension that's been building up for so many pages? For me, as a reader, I write everything that I would want to read, and it's really that simple. I have absolutely no idea what's going to be successful with anyone else but me. And when I wrote the first few drafts of this book, it was too long. The beginning part was, to me, just too long, too boring, too much backstory. And as I was reading it, I was instinctively thinking, get to the action. So I cut out 75 pages just Mm. so we could speed things up uh, for my own internal sense of timing. And was that mostly just background stories from the various characters that are living in this community? Yeah. And I think they're interesting, but it's always a balancing act. You have to balance information versus tone and speed and interest. What's the use of giving someone the complete backstory of every single character if you're going to bore them to death? And maybe that was a mistake on my part. Maybe the audience would like more. But I can tell you for me, as the reader of my own work, I wanted to get to the monster. I don't always like listening to my own voice when I'm going back and hearing a show. Do you have a version of that and going back and reading what you're writing on other times that you just want to tear up entire chapters and start from scratch? Oh, God. Yeah, no, of course. Draft one is always the best draft because the goal is simply to write the end. That's what I do. When I sit down to write a first draft, ugh. It's wonderful. I don't have to worry if it's any good. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry if it makes sense. All I got to do is get to the end so I'm not staring at this daunting blank page. And so I can be relaxed and happy (laughs) and egotistical and think I'm talented. And then the next 99 drafts come along. And that is just some brutal self-critical editing. Back to the book itself, the end of chapter 11 saw the first and I think the only use of the title word devolution. My question for you is which came first, the sentence, maybe some instinct told them it was time to swap evolution for devolution, reach back to who they were to take back what was theirs, or the actual title itself? 
Title came first. Title came first because the movie came before the book. Many, many years ago, I sold a movie idea to Legendary Entertainment. Huh. And as I was pitching the idea to Thomas Tull, the founder and CEO of Legendary, he asked me, what's the title? And from somewhere in my brain just came this word. And it's never left. And believe me, we've gone through a lot of political battles over this title. What sort of political battles? Well, the book's also coming out in the UK, and I did not know this, but in the UK, devolution means Scottish political independence. Huh. So they asked if there was any other title we could use, and boy, we went through, oh God, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of possible titles, some of which were just horribly lame, some of which <laughs> were good but had already been used. And so the only title that I felt comfortable using is one that I had thought of on my own without stealing from anybody. And so that was the title I stuck with. And truth be told, I think it still accurately defines what our characters have to go through. Absolutely, because even though there's maybe a negative connotation to devolution or devolution, as some may pronounce it, there is a certain growth that comes from devolving into what allows them to protect themselves when this book is all said and done. What is a way that you have maybe had to devolve over time that actually turned out to be a positive once you went through that? When I write any book, I have to research it exhaustively. And that's just for my own insecurities and also my own curiosity. My hero growing up was Tom Clancy. And so when I read his books, I always felt like I was smarter walking away from the last page. And I always wanted to be that kind of writer. I always say for every hour I spend writing, I spend 100 hours researching. And with this one, every single thing in that book, I had to do myself. I had to make those weapons from scratch, from the materials in the book, with the tools described in the book, just to see if I could do it. I went to the place in the Pacific Northwest where I had placed my imaginary town of Greenloop to see if my characters could walk out on their own. And they can't. I can tell you for certain. If you are a pampered urbanite who <laughs> has never hiked beyond an established trail and you've got no map and no compass and not the right clothes and you're not in the right shape and you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to make it out of there. Yeah, I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a little bit in southwestern Oregon. It is disillusioning ending up off a trail. Very quickly, you lose a sense of direction, and you can't really see where the sun is, or perhaps if it's getting close to nighttime, you're not totally sure where the moon is, and you really do get confused. No, you really do. And for me, it's always important to be authentic. And even when the book comes out, I always worry that there's always going to be an expert, more expert than me, that's totally going to bust my ass. With one of my previous books, The Harlem Hellfighters, true story, African-American combat unit, World War One. I. I thought, oh my God, Spike Lee is just going to come down on me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> and Spike Lee loved it so much, he invited me into his office to tell me how much he enjoyed it. Wow. This time around, my Spike Lee was Les Stroud, Survivor Man. Oh, man. And what was his response? He loved it. He gave me my first blurb. He gave me the first resounding review of it. Thank God, because I've been a huge fan of his for so many years. 
just like with Spike, I was a huge fan, and I thought if he doesn't like it, it's going to break my heart. Same thing with Les Stroud. I thought if Survivor Man says, dude, you totally don't get it, I'd be devastated. But he loved it, and now we talk quite frequently. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the authenticity that comes with not just doing the research, but actually getting the hands-on experience with some of what it is that you're describing in this book. Because in Chapter 18, you go into a detailed description of how to make a spear out of a bamboo stick and a knife from scratch. So you actually did that. Is that the most difficult thing that you had to do in terms of learning how to make these various tools and other weapons? Yeah, that was very difficult because in my book, my characters have no tools. The whole point of interconnectivity, the point of this eco-community, is that they can live in the woods, but they live in smart homes. These homes are computerized. So anything that goes wrong with the house, the house will send an automatic signal to the handyman service in Seattle or a nearby town, and they'll come rushing up in their electric driverless vans, and they'll fix it for you. As a result, these over-educated, overpaid David Sedaris fans, and I say that as David is a very good friend of mine, these people have PhDs, but they don't know how to screw in a light bulb. (laughs) And so I had to put myself in that mindset. How do I make a spear with nothing but a kitchen knife, a section of electrical cord for a lamp, a scissor, a paring knife, and a rock? The character who makes that spear... The Kate Holland character has very much a sense of pride about that weapon. Is that something that you've kept with you? Oh, I still got it. Yeah, it's right here in my office, along with all the other things I have done. And the pride that Kate has in working with her hands, I feel that too. My hobby is gardening. Okay. And I'm in my head all the time. So when Kate talks about that utter rush of seeing those first little shoots come up from seeds, I know that feeling. I actually had to use for the book in addition to my own gardening, I took the exact seeds that she would have used to see how they would come up and when they would come up and how long they would take to grow. And I had to keep a calendar in my office. So it guided me over the course of the book. Considering the personal nature of gardening for you and how you applied that in this book, does fictionally destroying something you love in real life affect you differently as a writer? Oh, of course. And I think that that is a writer's job. I think that's an artist's job. Isn't an artist supposed to make you feel for someone who is not you, even though they may be of a different tribe, they might be living in a different time, in a different place, dealing with a situation that you have never and would never deal with. If that artist can make you feel for that person, can put yourself in their shoes, that is an incredible job. And that's what I always try to do. No matter what my characters are going through, I always try to find some sort of emotional connection with them that is similar. While you can gain experience about a lot of different things when researching a book, you cannot gain the experience of death. And you write about death, and you also write about near-death experiences. Obviously, you're not trying to put yourself near death for the art, although that would be very artistic of you. How do you go about researching near-death experiences and then accurately portraying those on these pages? I don't have to research it. I mean, I've witnessed death, and I've witnessed situations where I could have died. When I think about fighting Sasquatch and feeling death coming for you, it's no different than when I was driving to college my sophomore year. My car got slammed into at what, 60, 70 miles an hour on the freeway and spinning into the freeway, just waiting, waiting for that secondary impact that I knew was going to finish me. It's moments like that. And as far as 
seeing death and feeling death, well, if you've ever had a parent die of cancer right in front of you, you know what death is. You start each chapter with a quote. The quote at the start of chapter 24 is from an LSU professor of marketing and management in 1963 who was talking about Darwin. Quoting Darwin's origin of species, it's not the most intellectual of species that survives. It's not the strongest that survives. But the species that survives is the one that is best able to adapt and adjust to the changing environment in which it finds itself. What's the most you've ever had to adapt? Oh, God. I mean, I'm adapting all the time. I had to adapt when I went to college. I had to adapt when I left college. I had to adapt when I got my first real grown-up job. I had to adapt when I met my girlfriend and knew that someday she was going to be my wife. I adapted when she became my wife, adapted to being a married man. I adapted to being a parent. I adapted to losing my mom. I adapt every day. I adapt as I'm approaching middle age and things like my eyes are starting to go. Life is constant adaptation if you're living it right. Who is the Muster character based on? She is a very important figure in this story. Is she based on somebody specific or something you just made up in your head? Oh, no, no, no. Everybody in that book is based on someone real. Hmm. They're either an amalgam or they're an actual person. Mostar comes pretty close to somebody I know. Not a war refugee, but she's had enough trials and tribulations in her life that she takes things in stride that would just absolutely eviscerate some of the pampered, neurotic West L.A. people that I know. <laughs> Interesting. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this word correctly, so I'm going to spell it for you. What is I-K-L-W-A? Oh, Ikla. That's the sound that a Zulu short stabbing spear makes when you pull it out of an enemy's heart and lungs. It's powerful stuff right there. A very important part in the end of this book. I found it fascinating that I finished this book and felt like I had just read a crescendo. Is that something that you were intending for when you started it, to have this build up, and at a certain point you start to get that payoff, and it just really intensifies all the way to the end? I think for me it was sort of organic. It's kind of like when I write anything, if I set up a halfway decent premise, then it leads the way. If this is the premise, that you've got these soft urbanites in this wonderful utopian eco-community, that suddenly find themselves not just cut off from civilization, but utterly forgotten. And they've got to learn to survive, to work with their hands, to devolve from a 21st century eco-community to basically a medieval village. And then they find themselves under siege from a pack of giant, brutal, very, very hungry primates that are trying to store them up as calories for the winter you pretty much can imagine how this is going to go down. You subtly included your dad's play, The Producers, in this book. Is that something that's common for you in your writings, to pay homage to your dad and or your mom? I always reference my mom and dad, just not in the obvious way. I mean, that's an obvious reference, but you got to remember that in addition to being the son of two Hollywood icons, I'm also the Gen X son of two greatest generation parents, and that's very rare. Hmm. As someone who grew up in the 80s, I had a lot of friends whose parents grew up in the 60s. And it was a similar life. Not exactly the same, but similar enough. But my parents, they grew up in the 40s. My dad was a combat veteran of World War II. My mother grew up rationing and recycling and doing her part to make sure that we won. 
they went from the depression to prosperity. And so everything they learned was passed down to me. And so their stories always filter down into my work. Max, I don't want to spoil the ending of this book, so I'm going to ask this next question as vaguely as possible. Do you know the answer to the final question? You know, I'm not sure. We'll just have to wait and see. Okay. Last thing, since this book got its title from a movie pitch so many years ago, are there plans to come up with a silver screen adaptation to this novel? That's what we're hoping for. The evolution, the evolution of <laughs> this book is that I wrote it as a movie idea initially mm. and sold it to Legendary and they brought on a writer, they brought on a director, they brought on a whole team of developers and it was going and it was going and it was going and it wasn't really going in the direction I originally saw. So when it sort of sputtered and died, I didn't feel too sad and I let it lie for years and years and finally I went back to Thomas Tall and I asked him if I could just have the novel rights back and he didn't have to say anything. He owns everything, but he was so generous. He gave me back the book rights, let me go write the book. Since then, he has moved on from Legendary. Now, whether the book will inspire Legendary to restart the movie, we will have to wait and see. He is Max Brooks, an author, public speaker, and non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He is a New York Times bestselling author of books like Minecraft, The Island, the Zombie Survival Guide, and World War Z, and the book that we're talking about today, Devolution or Devolution, regardless of how you pronounce that. Mm -hmm. Make sure to go out and buy this book. Max, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. My pleasure.